What's up, Energy Fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Perfect. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. I'm here with my man, Andrew Thornton, Vice President at Kimberlite International Oilfield Research. Andrew, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. How's everything in your world today, man? You know, it's 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 really good. I'm having a great day enjoying this uh, slightly cooler weather here in Houston after about five to six months of, uh, you know, uh, Satan sauna, as I like to refer to it. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's funny. We were just talking about that. And anyone listening, this will probably get released sometime in November uh, at the beginning. So you're probably like, it's irrelevant. But anyone who was here during the summer, uh, you either spent a bunch of time trying to like figure out how to cool off your house or if you did, you spent a bunch of money doing it. Uh, so now we're, yeah, we're in the the nice weather of Houston, Texas, or Texas in general. And um, yeah, it's it's a nice change for sure. It's funny because we we're talking, you're from uh, the UK, I'm from Canada. And so this time of year, like the, the weather's changing, the leaves are starting to change color, they're falling. And I had to laugh. I literally just, my my son and my wife went to the zoo just now, and I was outside and there was a bunch of leaves on the driveway and on the grass uh, from some tree that we have. I don't know what it's called, but it's it's not the same as back home when you have like maple leaves falling and like all these like beautiful big leaves. It's like these little crispy leaves from some random bush. And I was like, okay, like this is it. This like we're in fall mode now. It's good. <laughs> that that is the extent of fall in Houston, I guess. Overall, but I was I was I think I was telling you, I really enjoy. It's just that great feeling of the cool air and everything like that. It just gives you that that boost of energy that you need um, after just the humidity so I'm, I'm doing really well today and i'm looking forward to quite frankly getting outside this afternoon there we go well i appreciate you taking the time on a friday to do this um i'm curious so uh you mentioned being from the uk i'd be curious if you could just kind of run through your story um and then you've been with kimberlite now for a few months which it sounds like it's going great but yeah just kind of run through your background and why you decided to go from oilfield services to oilfield research Sure. No, it's 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 a slightly different story to how most people get into to oil and gas. Um, so I made the mistake <laughs> of uh, of doing a master's degree straight after my bachelor's in the mid two thousands, which sounded like a really good idea at the time, and it ended me smack bang in the middle of the financial crisis, uh, which is really a good 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 time to be uh, seeking employment. But at the time, you didn't know that was going to happen, so it's yeah, no, the exactly. best decision at the time. Best decision at the time, no, and it, it's, it has turned out for the best. But um, so I ended up uh, joining an organization I wasn't expecting to, which was a market research and analytics firm um, doing consumer goods in the UK. And wow. so um, a lot of what they did was um, really doing customer research for some of the big brands you might know, like um, Red Bull, probably the most famous one that, that I worked for. Yeah, fairly um, big. <laughs> so worked for them for a long time. And my wife, just so happened to get an offer to move here to Houston, Texas about 11-ish years ago. So packed up the bags, um, said goodbye to consumer research in uh, in London, moved here to Houston. And uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind ever since. Then got hired on at Baker um, doing voice of the customer research analysis for them. So I was always in the marketing and research analytics division. Uh, moved around the company, um, was involved in a couple of the failed and not failed acquisitions. So it was a big Halliburton deal back in 2014, 15, I want to say. Right. Um, so I had, had a lot to do with that with regards to the integration, all those kind of components. Then just moved around the company doing market research analytics. But, you know, voice of the customer research marketing was always kind of my my bread and butter and my core. And Andrew, uh, real quick, when you say voice of the customer, it, it was a term when you had, we were conversing back and forth. Yeah. I kind of had to think about, I'm like, voice of the customer. But I, I'm curious, like, can you describe what that means to you? So people, when you say that, have a good understanding of what you mean? Yeah. So when I say voice of the customer, it's you can approach it from two components, right? There's a what I would call consumer component and a, and a business to business component. And we're in oil and gas, we tend to be in the business to business world. 
and we say, okay, well, the voice of my customer is person X said Y. But that's not really research. That's more of an opinion. So when we say voice of the customer in business to business, we think of we've gone through and we've actually spoken at length, at nauseum with specific questions, specific criteria. It's like, what is this individual trying to say to us? And you build up their quote unquote voice. Well, you add all of those together with different people and you get a voice of a customer. So if you speak to 10 people from operator, name one, Conoco or Exxon, 10, 15, 20 people, and they're all saying something very, very similar. That's what we would call their, their voice of the, the customer, so to speak. You do the same thing every day in your day-to-day lives um, in terms of consumer research. You're being marketed to as a customer of a brand. Uh, let's go Red Bull, for example. Um, they're out there. They're researching what people are thinking, saying, doing, and they're building this image, as it were, this brand image of who they should be in relation to you. So that's kind of what we mean by voice of the customer is we're going out there and we're talking to people, quite frankly, and collating that together and providing that as a service effectively. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. And then thanks for clearing that up. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because especially in oil and gas, um, again, being in this industry, my entire career, it's oftentimes extremely difficult, or at least I found, and I, again, I deal a lot of times with drilling engineers, drilling managers, VP of ops, so on and so forth. And, you know, it's oil and gas, and especially on the upstream side, we've been so, we we hold on to data and information so tightly. And even though internally at an operator, if they think Joe Blow service, uh, energy services is the best thing that's ever been on their rig or whatever, they never really talk about it. You know what I mean? Like it, it's almost like they're so scared to give up information to say, you know what? I stand behind uh, Johnny's oil field service company because they've actually increased my performance and drove down costs. Even if that's the case, they never come out and say it. You have to beg and plead to even know how you're, even if I'm a vendor to go to an operator and say, can you please give me a rating at least on how I doing? And it's like, well, your costs are still kind of high, but you're doing okay. We haven't ran you off yet. And it's like, is that the best you can give me? You know, and I find that extremely frustrating. Sorry to interrupt, but this episode is sponsored by 10X Technologies, the trailblazers in pushing the boundaries of chemistry and revolutionizing the oil and gas industry with their pioneering material-based technology solutions. With groundbreaking products like Sandbond, a sand consolidation chemical solution that exemplifies 10X's commitment to practical field-ready solutions. Now, onto an incredible success story. Thanks to Sandbond, an operator had a well that was revived after not producing oil for over 10 years due to sand flowback issues. What once lay idle for over a decade now produces up to 15 barrels per day, BOPD, with zero sand production. This remarkable achievement showcases the sheer potential and power of Sandbond. It's a testament to our commitment to transforming the industry. To discover more about the groundbreaking solutions from 10X and keep an eye out for their launch of five new products coming soon, visit the website pumpmoreoil.com. Now, let's dive back in the show. It, it, it really is. And I think that it's changing. I think it's definitely changing over time. And the use I of, agree. And I agree. The information is, but you're absolutely right. I mean, and again, around certain parts of the world, it's still very tight to the chest. But I think the dissemination of public data in general has created this situation where everyone's going, okay, we need to maybe be a little bit more open. And we've seen, you know, people getting value out of it. So, you know, our company, we, we go out there, we conduct 3000 interviews a year, approximately, um, you know, a lot of time and effort spent to get those interviews. And we still have a lot of people who's like, no, no, I'm, I'm not sharing information, but we've had instances where people have said, well, I'm not, okay, I'll share some information. And then they've got information back which has really helped them and so it becomes that kind of two-way street of okay i get what i give so to speak if i give nothing i'm not going to get anything in return in terms of understanding the broader market um but if i if i give some information yes it might make me a little bit nervous to pass that along um providing it's not you know strictly confidential then actually you tend to get a lot of value out of it and so i think that's one thing we've seen over time is more people being open to it. And I think just the modern day world we live in where information is absolutely everywhere is just kind of made us immune to it, I guess, in a way. Yeah, no. And I would say, you know, from my personal experience yeah. dealing with, with operators, 
you're starting to see as, as, as different generations tend to move into managerial roles, um, the relationship between the, the vendor and the operator are slightly different by way of, you know, they'll acknowledge that a service providers actually help their operations. And even on LinkedIn, I've seen some of the, some of the smaller operators, even some of the privates um, will actually give shout outs to XYZ directional for drilling a record curve, which is like super cool to see. And, and even, you know, I have a, a customer uh, of mine that I've had for a while who, who sent an email out to all the, to all the stakeholders that were part of drilling a, a certain pad and acknowledged certain vendors because of the performance that helped contribute to like a record pad. And so you, to your point, like you're slowly starting to see that shift in terms of like, we're okay acknowledging certain service providers because without them, we know we wouldn't be anything. Um, but again, the, 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 the way we communicate uh, the wins and losses is slightly different. Um, and, and so again, it's, it's an interesting conversation. Um, well, and, and I think what's, you know, really, I guess, critical there when you think about it is that positive affirmation so to speak is actually important for those for those service companies as well to your point it's like hey yeah. you're doing a good job and, and it's providing that feedback it's like keep keep doing what you're doing as opposed to just constantly like yeah i'm not i'm not telling you how you're performing okay well how do i how do i do anything about that how do i move forward as an organization if if, if you genuinely believe my technology needs development i need to hear it if yeah. you genuinely believe that my people are fantastic and we got to hold on to X, Y, and Z, no matter what, they, as a service company, you need to hear that information so that you're able to then make, because we're all having to make decisions, right? Well, yeah. let, my view is, well, let's try not to make those decisions in a vacuum. I think we sometimes forget, you know, oh, I'm a service company and you're an operator and I'm a company and I'm a company. It's like, yeah, but we're people. Right. Yeah. And, and we're, we're interacting as individuals, as it were. And so we need to understand how are we viewed as individuals. Yeah. No, it's, it's a, again, a super interesting conversation. And that one one that I could have for a long time, because, you know, I live and breathe that world. You did yeah. for a long time. Long time uh, but yeah. now you get but now you get to kind of sit and, and look at things from a unique lens. And so I want to dive right into it, um, okay. you know, about Kimberlite. And I just if you could give us a brief overview of of what Kimberlite Oldfield Research does and then maybe something that you know, kind of sets you guys apart or something that you've since being there have kind of noticed like, you know, this, this, this is kind of special. And this is why I think we're, we're doing a great job. And, and, uh, and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah. So, I mean, in a nutshell, I think I mentioned it earlier, we go out and we conduct about 3000 interviews per year, predominantly phone-based interviews um, with oil field operators for the most part. We're like, so our, we're speaking to operators, we would call those to the customers, as it were, of the service companies. And we're speaking to them and we're asking them a whole range of questions. Yes, around what is your plans for activity, macro stuff, and you know, pricing, trends, all of that component. Where's the market going? But then we start to dive into those questions we just alluded to is like, how are these service companies performing? Okay, you know, what is their rating? How would you view them as an equipment provider versus a technology provider? And we're starting to ask those kind of questions and build the analytics together to provide that to the service companies in the investment community. So you start to develop these profiles yeah. of all of these different organizations. And so we're doing that every year. We're doing reports across, you know, from formation valuation all the way through drilling, completion, production, end of life. So we produce multiple reports i mean i think it's it's close to 100 reports a year as it were on this oh, wow. um and uh, it's it's definitely interesting having moved across from a, you know a few months ago say 10 year as a recipient of the information as it were uh, yeah. at Baker, um and understanding okay this is the information i'm receiving now to the other side of the fence the big differentiator for us i think is there's a lot of data providers out there right there's a lot of market research consultancies and firms um, we've all spoken to different ones, whether that be for board of, you know, board of director presentations or investor relations. The biggest difference I see between us is that we go out there and we, we talk to people. That's, that's our main, <laughs> that's our main differentiator. That's what we do. Um, yeah. yes, we go out there and we can, we can grab public data and we can grab the Baker Hughes rig count and we can grab EIA data and we can put it together and, and we will. 
but our main thing is we go out and we we talk and we want to listen and hear what people are are saying yeah and that's kind of special because you know not a lot of people do that i think it's think we got a lot of people who form opinions through through just information but we tend to form our opinions through through talking that lost art so to speak <laughs> yeah no i think you bring up a really good point i mean it's and that's why you know especially in oil field services <clears throat> you know it's one thing to um you know cold called via email but the best type of cold calling is somehow getting in front of someone and just asking the right questions because the amount of information that you can get if you just allow people to talk um given the right questions you can extract so much information which they almost tell you exactly what they're looking for and then you just come up with a solution tailored to to the problem and away you go and so you know but 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 again kind of going back to the lost art yeah, I think people are, are so quick to just get on Google or Bard or, you know, any AI tool out there that can compile information and then draw conclusions based off that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's it all comes from people. And if you can get boots on the ground and get in the weeds and ask and talk to people, uh, that's where you're going to gather and extract the most valuable information. So I, I, I tend to kind of lean into that as well and, and commend you guys for kind of you know, sticking to that principle of let's just talk to people who are doing the work. <laughs> yeah. And, and you're going to get these macro observations. Sure. And you're going to get it from the, the data sources as well, but it's those micro observations that actually can really drive a lot of value. It's like, Hey, I'm mm. having this problem in this particular area of, of, you know, my asset or whatever my F AFE is like, this is the challenge I'm having. This is what I'm being presented. Okay. Well, when I used to work in Northfield Services Company, I'd, I'd hear that from one customer and I'd bring back and I'd say, hey, this is a challenge. I said, okay, cool. Well, here at Kimberly, I can be speaking to one, two, three, 20, 30 different operators. And if they're all telling me the same thing, you're starting to get a triangulation point there. It's like, oh, okay, all of these five you know, to 30 people have got the same problem. And now we can aggregate that into data and pass that along and say, hey, this is a challenge. And this is something everyone's facing. Uh, and by the way, this company over here is addressing it in a fantastic manner. And this company over here has got a little bit of work to do. Um, those kind of micro observations, those are kind of really cool as well. You know, we enjoy, we really enjoy the, that micro stuff and, and understanding. Well, you're, yeah, again, you're and a lot of that talking you're, you're right a lot of the micro stuff you don't get i mean you might get some of it in earnings calls when there's q a but it's still very much investor driven right which at the end of the day you know they're depending on who the consumer of the information is where they might be making investment decisions or they might be just making operational decisions on on how to improve service quality or whatever the case um but it kind of goes back to the voice of the customer which i want to touch on it's I would imagine it's it's becoming increasingly important across industries, especially oil and gas. But from your perspective, how crucial it is it in oil and gas, especially with the current market environment and the volatility and the and all the rest of it? So I think it's you know what's interesting to me coming from a consumer world and I see how much effort and spend, you know, when when I was when Red Bull was one of my clients, right? They'll they'll tell you the same thing. Their product is, is very, very similar to every other product out there on the shelf. But the amount of money they're spending on researching their customers, understanding what drives their behavior, what's important to them, and how do I market to them is, is insane. And when I came across to Oilfield, and this was a while ago, so it has changed, it was not the same approach, right? It was, here's my technology. All right. It's, 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 if it's not going to sell itself, then I'm going to sell it on price. And that's effectively was the approach. And that has evolved and changed over the years where I think we're going to need to see more people kind of diving into the data. It's like, what's driving your behavior? What's mm. driving your decision-making? Because the market's becoming increasingly compressed. You know, look, we saw the news here in North America this, this morning, right, of uh, another big potential <laughs> uh, acquisition, right? Exxon and Pioneer. Yeah. Um, whether or not that comes to fruition, I, I think I've seen it a few times over the last few years. We'll find yeah. out. Um, yeah. But that trend is is only going in one direction in terms of consolidation. And so you're going to have less and less here in North America operators to, to do business with, so to speak. Now, those operators are going to have more money to spend collectively, potentially. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 
it's going to go from 100 down to 50. So how do I find my competitive advantage as a service company? Yes, your technology plays a role. Yes, people are always going to play a role. Your availability is going to play a role. How responsive you are to picking up the phone is going to play a role. But you know, using data and research and analytics to help you find what's most important to your customers and market to them accordingly. Somebody's going to be solely driven by price. Hey, no matter what, I this is my deal. This is what's driving me. It's price. This person over here is like, I'm pushing the limits. I'm going out to lateral lengths you've never even heard of. I'm putting profit loads that you've, you know, beyond like technology, reliability, that's going to be what's critical for me. And then using data to determine who's who yeah. and then how I approach them and develop technology for them is, for me, it's going to be critical going forward as we shift more towards that consumer model where data and analytics and research comes more and more into play as opposed to just the technology selling itself. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. Um, <clears throat> and I know that you're, you're, you're still kind of fairly new in, in this type of, of role, or at least on this side of the fence, but are there, are you familiar or know of any specific instances where like the voice of the customer research dramatically changed a company's approach or if not, like how you potentially could see that, uh, being part of the solution? Yeah. I mean, without going into specifics about, you know, to name names, so to speak, right, but right. instances of, you know, a service company who's looked at what we would call a value map and our value maps basically say, look, who's performing above the industry average, who's performing below what's views on pricing, what's the customer saying. And so we had an instance uh, not too long ago, where it was a, a major account uh, for a service company that was effectively saying, look, to all intents and purposes, you're delivering what you're delivering, but what you're delivering isn't actually what I need. I need something entirely different and effectively put them in a, what we would call a value disadvantage position where potentially they could lose that work. That was a pretty su significant client. Yeah. And so the service company noticing this data point kind of, they got our data, they then triangulate it with other information because like, all market research firms, we don't have all the answers, but we're part of the puzzle, as it were. Yeah. And they got the additional data. It's like, oh, hang on, we're at risk here. We really need to uh, to you know rally the troops and and save this account. And and they did that, and it worked uh, pretty spectacularly for them. So that's you know an example of how you would use our information um, or how it has been used, I should say. Yeah. No, that's exactly what I was looking for. That's a great example. Uh, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about the competi uh, competitive positioning and customer loyalty. And so I'm curious, what metrics do you guys look at when assessing the competitive positioning and, and customer loyalty of oil field service uh, suppliers? Yeah, so I'll start, I'll, go, I'll reverse order. I go customer loyalty, but um, so customer loyalty will use the net promoter score, which um, has been around as a metric made by Bain and company for several decades ago. And basically it's a really straightforward question, which is look on a scale of one to 10, you know, how likely are you to recommend service company X to a friend or colleague? Because the best, you know, recommendation could be, I'm going to recommend you to somebody else. Like I'm going to put my name because you're effectively at that point in time, you're selling for that service company because you're putting your name next to it. Yeah. It's like, I come to you, Justin and say, Hey, I really like this uh, product or I really like this app or whatever, you should go get it. Then I'm attaching my name to it. So that's been a really good way of measuring loyalty. Are you going to recommend it to someone else? And so you go from a scale of one to 10 and without getting too much detail, if you're a nine or a 10, highly likely to recommend six or below, um, you know, you're not going to recommend them. And then you've got the middle. I think there's a little bit of cultural differences here. I'm from the UK, right? Where, uh, <laughs> If you've got anything above 70 in an exam, you're considered a genius. Uh, whereas in the, in the US, I think if you've got less than 95, it's considered a fail. Um, so <laughs> there is a few cultural <laughs> normalizations that need to occur from, from time to time. Um, I remember when I first came to the United States, and they were like, well, what grade did you get? I was like, well, you know, it was a, it was a 77. And they were like, oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. It's like, no, that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I, I, I can identify with that. Yeah. I think Canada is somewhat similar as well in terms of the cultural aspect to it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
but you know so that would measure customer loyalty um and it gives you what we call a net promote what we call a net promoter score um you basically take hey how many people would recommend you versus the percentage that wouldn't and you net them off against one another so that's how we look at that and it's a pretty consistent metric over time in terms of performance depending on the study we look at a range of different factors but the main ones we're going to look at are how would you rate on equipment quality of reliability right is is it doing what it said in a reliable manner is there a technological differentiation between you and the competition how responsive are you like you know when you pick up the phone when you pick up the phone and call you know justin oilfield services are they going to pick up and be better and you know help you out quickly how are they responding to your technical challenges? So we ask a series of questions. When we, again, we just do it one to 10, and it gives us an idea of overall how each body, how each uh, service company is faring across kind of like people, technology, pricing, availability. That's kind of how we would bucket it all yeah. together. And it gives you an overall performance score effectively. Gotcha. Okay. But no, again, going back to different people different companies have different drivers so you may be knocking it out the park on technology but if you're knocking it out the park in technology for a price sensitive buyer that may not be the way to go and vice versa like your pricing may be fantastic but if they're a technology buyer and you're getting a five for technology then you're probably not going to win the work right so in i don't know if this is a relevant question but like because there's so many different companies with so many, I guess, business objectives, which may change the outcome of the answers. Do you guys somewhat account for that or normalize it? Or is it just the data is the data and you try and get enough data set to kind of cover the entire spectrum? Yeah. I mean, we, as much as possible, we're, we're going to try and report the news, so to speak. And we try to get as many data points as possible to get then that helps normalize on that but you're always going to see differentiation and and segmentation based yeah. upon those answers but yeah overall we're just going to try and get as much as possible so we can report report the news effectively gotcha um in terms of market share data and supplier benchmarking can you kind of walk through how you guys gather market share data for like I think I read something like over 70 oil field product and service lines. And that just seems like a huge, you know, cookie to chew on. It's, it's a challenge to say, to say the least. Um, <laughs> a lot of it's going to come down to, you know, looking at a variety of factors. We have our own understanding and knowledge of the marketplace. We have publicly available financials we're able to look at as well. For some companies, it depends on the level of detail as to what they provide. We're able to triangulate against that. And then yeah. we, you know, as part of our surveys, right, we're talking to 3,000 people and we're getting an understanding of who are you using? How much of your business are you giving to X versus Y? So you're able to put all of these pieces of the puzzle together to get at least an indication of, of market share. Um, it's probably, quite frankly, for our research, you know, there's value in it, but we think the micro observations are more valuable, but we probably get more attention for, for market share, as I'm sure you know, it's, it's a very sensitive subject matter shall we say and having been on the other side of the fence I, I understand just how sensitive it can be from time to time yeah yeah no that's that's true um so how how would you say the supplier performance benchmarking tie into a larger picture of the market share and, and customer loyalty or or does it no, it, there's definitely a correlation, right, between your overall performance versus your market share. So we've seen that time and time again, and your customer loyalty is statistically correlated to your financial performance. What we tend to see happen is if you're improving your performance, if you are improving your technology, you're improving your personnel competencies, you're, you're steadily marching to the right effectively. Someone yeah. once said to me, it's like, Andrew, just make sure the graph is always going up and to the right. <laughs> uh, if you're steadily moving in that direction, it tends to correlate pretty positively with your revenue performance and your margin performance, because what are you doing? Well, I'm providing greater value to my clients. My clients are then more likely to recommend me to someone else. So I'm going to retain work. I'm going to potentially bring up new work. 
and then that's going to result in those financials. So it's kind of our data is almost a bit like a leading indicator to how you then get to that market share. Market oh, yeah. shares the score. Market shares the scoreboard at the end of the game, right? Yeah. It, it's the scoreboard at the end of the game. We tend to think of our data of okay, here's here's how you get to your playbook. Like here's how. I'm, I feel like I need some credit there just for using a, a football analogy. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everyone being, knows exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, this is how you get to the end of the game in that market share position. But our data kind of gives you that, okay, look, this customer values this, this customer values Y, your strategy is X. Move in that direction and it will result in the financial return at the end of the day um, is kind of how we, we look at it. But they're definitely, you'd be amazed sometimes when we, we look at these financial correlations and, and the revenue performance, the margin performance as to how tightly they they track one another as it were. Mm. Okay. Interesting. Uh, pivoting to industry trends and needs. Are there any, like based off your recent research, are there any emerging trends uh, in oil and gas that you've noticed that are either surprising or exciting or just something that's really captured your guys's attention? So I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a little passionate. So I'm really, I'm, I'm excited. It's the best way I can des describe it. So um, we, you know, of all of those reports we published, I think the one we did a, a few weeks ago was uh, artificial lift and, and production chemicals, which is the one we most recently published. And I think we've all seen here in North America for the past seven or eight years, really since that kind of downturn of 2015, you know, the, the productivity on a per rig, a per well basis, went through the ceiling, right? It was kind of like went from 2000 rigs all the way down to hundreds. And we only went back up to 900, but oil just kept going up and up and up. Production just kept going up and up and up. It was yeah. the shale miracle, right? And then it happened again <clears throat> uh, in 18 and 19. And then it happened again, like the last couple of years. And a lot of that is on the drilling and the completion side of the equation, right? In terms of drilling efficiencies, lateral length, stage counts, product production volumes. But the piece of the puzzle that was not really touched yet was on the production uh, enhancement, is it? Well. When it comes to like digital of artificial, you know, digital use of artificial lift and production chemicals and combining those things together and looking at you know, a lot of the efficiency, productivity, and technology was on the drilling and completion side and yeah. very much on the production side. Um, and what we saw in our most recent study is a very clear need for that to be the next quote-unquote technology frontier in North America. So I think you've heard a lot in the news um, about, you know, running out of inventory in North America or, you know, hey, their inventory run rate is why we saw this consolidation. Yeah, but the best way I can describe it is this. We don't have an inventory problem in North America. We have an economically viable inventory challenge. So interesting. I, I, would view, I would view that as, look, it's a challenge. With product technology, with technology and differentiation from the service companies being appropriately applied by the operators, then you can turn that acreage, which breaks even at 60, 70 bucks, to break even at 40 bucks, you know, whatever that, that looks like. I think you're at the top of the whale curve when it comes to drilling and completions, maybe. We'll see. I'm sure there's always somebody out there thinking of something crazy and new, which is great. Yeah. But production, artificial lift, chemicals, and the use of digital in that space in particular, hmm. I think is kind of the next frontier in North America. And that's the bit I'm kind of really... You can tell I'm, I'm excited about what that even looks like. So I'm not even sure the industry knows what it looks like, but they know there's something there and they yeah. just need to quite figure it out. No, that, you know, it's, I know there are companies that are working towards increasing the, the well productivity. Um, you know, there are a couple of the show sponsors, one's on the chemistry side, one's on, um, you know, automation, uh, you know, and, and, uh, like inflow control type stuff yep. um, to where, yeah, I mean, I, I really liked what you'd said about instead of having an inventory problem, having an economically viable, uh, what was it that you said? I said, I said, it's not an inventory problem. It's an economically 
Oh man, I've lost my own words. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> made I, me forget my own words. Thankfully, we recorded it because recorded we this so it could look. But it's like you know, how do I tell? It's, it, it's an economic inventory challenge, effectively. Like, how do we make it? How yeah. do we how do we rise to the challenge to make that acreage economically viable? Yeah, well, and it, it comes down to I remember being you know when I was back in school, we we often talked about oil field reserves, and there's so much original oil in place. But what you can economically viably produce is so mm -hmm. small. And so I thought like even back then, it doesn't like a monkey could figure out like we need to figure out a way to like extract all the oil, not just like 13 percent of it or whatever. You know, obviously it varies, but it's, you know, <clears throat> when we can get to that point, uh, it'll be fascinating. And the company that I work for, um, JCAM Catalyst, is our sister company. We're, we're all under the same umbrella. And um it's uh you know they're up to some fascinating things and i know that they they're, they're continuously scratching and at, at getting just more technologically advanced and and just hearing conversations internally it's like there's a need for some really unique chemistry to unlock value that's you know essentially stuck in the rock um and that's, and so, i know i said i was gonna do but like that's a great company you know from our research this comes across consistently as a great company pushing the boundaries and really challenging and that part of the conversation right is that who are those service companies who are trying to get out there and push that that challenge? And that's definitely one of them that we've seen in our most recent data for sure. Cool. And 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 I I certainly didn't mean to send out a shameless plug, but oh, I mean, <laughs> it just so happens. I, yeah, no, but it's yeah. it's 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 an interesting conversation, and and it's one that like us as driller drilling guys, I'm like oh we just need to drill better wells. And it's like well I'm pretty sure like with directional drilling technology, like we can place a well exactly where we want it to. So you know, I don't know if like the rate of improvement or efficiency is going to directly correlate to better wells, maybe the placement of the wells. But again, I would agree that on the production and the efficiency, um, I think there's a lot of meat on the bone there. So uh, again, I, that's an area that where you're, 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 you're drilling, you know, with thinking about my ESP placement versus the chemicals I'm going to use, like you're, you're thinking about the whole life of the well to get from, from, and I don't think we all know, right? It's a, a lot of decision-making is, okay, I have my AFE. This is what I'm responsible for. This is my metrics that I need to hit, whether that be drilling days or lateral length. And it gets passed over to this, you know, the completion group and they've got their AFE and it gets passed over to production. It's like, the dream is obviously thinking that all the way through on every single well to maximize that ultimate recovery um that's the that's the dream right i think <laughs> yeah no it, it definitely is so speaking of, of companies and stuff like that like i'm assuming you guys have a pretty diverse range of clients so how do you adapt your research methods to meet the unique needs of, of all these different stakeholders because i'd imagine it's it's kind of dynamic in a way it, it is um there's a lot of uh, a lot of human horsepower that's that's put into it so to speak you know we're a pretty small small shop right um you know company of 10 people and we've got a, a massive client base and and uh so a lot of it comes down to yes it's human horsepower but it's it's doing our own voice of the customer so to speak with our clients and understanding their needs and their drivers and, and how they behave you know We've got clients from, you know, large corporate clients who behave in one particular way and they consume our information a, a particular way versus to other clients who completely different. And so we have to kind of tailor our approach um, to be able to deliver value for them. That, that creates a challenge for sure, but it's one that we're, as a team, we're kind of working our way around. It's like, okay, this person has a really great relationship and knows how to deal with this type of client versus versus someone else. But it all comes down to, understanding your client understanding the voice of the customer what's important to them we'd be pretty bad if we weren't we'd be pretty bad at voice of the customer research if we weren't applying our own kind of concepts <laughs> to ourselves so yeah that's funny no it's true right you gotta you gotta practice what you preach uh so um for companies out there like walk us through if you were to give a checklist like if you're a company that needs this and needs this and needs this, like where your solution, like if people can just kind of go through a checklist of like, like give the, give the ideal avatar as a, as a customer for you guys. Yeah. So there's a, a, we kind of cover a range of things, but I would say, look, if you're looking to understand the market from 
the voice of your customers, as it were, like not just, hey, here's a mathematical projection. Like what are your customers saying about where the market's going to go and what pricing is going to do and what we're anticipating? That would be one of the checklists. Are you looking to understand how you are viewed in the eyes of your customers? Like just taking a step back and saying, okay, let's look in the mirror here. Like from my customer's perspective, what am I good at? What am I bad at? What do I need to improve upon? Those are areas where you look for. If you are looking to grow and expand your business, then I think we would also fill in that checklist as well because like, what do I need to do and who do I need to target and how do I need to target them? So we kind of cover, as I said, ranging the macro to the micro and those, those, those checklists. And because we're a small shop and because we do, you know, voice of the customer research and Alex, we, we kind of cover a little bit of everything, right? We're very, we, we've done some bespoke studies as well that are completely off the wall and not necessarily related to our um, day-to-day operations, but someone said, Hey, I've got a need to understand this specific thing and yeah. nobody else out there has kind of given me any information. Can you help? And so we'll, we'll take on that, that challenge. Very cool. No, that's perfect. I think that that sends the right message. And again, it's, uh, it's interesting to, I mean, access to information is, I mean, it's like gold, right? And so the more you can get your hands on to help you make better business decision at the end of the day, that's, what's going to help drive performance and, and hopefully the financial health of the business. Um, Andrew, I'm curious when we kind of step back and, and, and pivot more towards, uh, you know, just more on the personal side of things, yeah. uh, you, you, you know, you, so, so how long have you been in the United States for? So I've been in the U S since January, 2013. So, um, okay. so yeah, yeah. for a long time. Ten and a half years. I am literally going to be a well. By the time this podcast airs, hopefully, I will be a citizen of the United States. I passed my naturalization. I passed my naturalization uh, last week, and they're sending me for my ceremony uh, next week. So, um, yeah, that's that's gonna. My my daughter is is very happy about that. She uh, she's American <laughs> through and through. Um, we asked her once. We said to her, "Is like, hey, because my wife is also British." Okay. Uh, I say also. Well. She, Okay, here's where it gets funny. She hasn't had her, you know, acceptance yet for the interview for naturalization. So okay. me and my daughter will, will be American and she'll be the, the odd one out. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we asked my daughter, we said, look, uh, would you consider yourself British or American? She said, dad, I'm from Texas. No way. Oh, my <laughs> that God. Was her, that was her exact response. She's like, not only am I American, I'm Texas. I'm and from Texas. The only state that matters. <laughs> That, that is my daughter for and through. So yeah, we've been here for 11 years, uh, nearly. And, you know, we've really enjoyed it. We obviously miss home, uh, family and stuff, but it's, I'm a convert to college football. Uh, so that, that helped with the transition for sure. Yeah. Who do you, um, who do you normally cheer for? So uh, this, this is where you get me into trouble, right? This is, this is, this is probably the most contentious question you've asked me in the entire <laughs> interview, right? It's like I could lose a third of my customer base depending on <laughs> who I say at this moment in time. Um, so it varies. Um, so my first ever college football experience was uh, Death Valley LSU versus okay. SEC on a Saturday night in the pouring rain. In oh, Baton Rouge. Wow. That was an experience unlike any I've ever had before. So I, I will always keep an eye out for LSU. Um, yeah. Being from Houston or being, you know, close to College Station, I've certainly been to a few AM games as well. And that's a, a great experience. And um, recently, a good friend of mine, she's like, look, I'm a, I'm a UT alumni. Like, yeah, it's like, we, we're, we've been friends for a long time, but it's time, it's time you went to, uh, you know, to Austin to a game. So I've been to a few UT games. So, oh, cool. but by and large, I'll follow the SEC. Uh, and now that Texas is joining the SEC and I can cover all of it. Yeah. Well, no, that's, I, again, I'm like you, man. Like I came from, you know, Canada. So it's like, you know, the big names in Canada, especially up North, you, you'll probably like Oregon's a big one being up, you know, up there. And then, you know, you'll get like Michigan and like all those ones. And I really didn't know much about like the Southern, like the SEC until yeah. coming down here. So, but I'm like you, but I, I got my graduate degree of University of Colorado. So I'm a, I'm a Buffs fan. You're, having, you're having a, you're having an interesting season. 
Man, it's uh, it's been fun. I mean, aside from their record, Deion Sanders has just done an amazing job with the whole. I mean, with just the whole organization. It's been fun. Um, I I I totally called it too, and because my son plays flag football, and wow. there was a a lady there who went to U, U, USC. And it was the morning that they were playing Oregon. And she was like, oh, yeah, you guys are going to probably, like, upset Oregon. This night. I said, I I have – I would bet, like, the rest of my year's salary that Oregon is going to punch us in the mouth. Mm-hmm. And not very many people thought that. Like, I think the this spread was, like, 21 points. And they obviously blew that uh, out of the water. But, like, <clears throat> it was uh, – a, you know, again, it was it, – people literally thought like they could almost go like undefeated and stuff. And the hype was real there for a bit, but I think they've been humbled, but uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. It, it, the whole college football scene has been, uh, has been entertaining on, on so many different fronts, but uh, no, that's it's always, cool to hear. It's always so much fun. College football. I, I just love it. I, I, I love the college game day. Uh, I love the experience. Yeah. I, I love going to some of the big stadiums. I'd really like to go to, maybe like an Ohio state, like Notre Dame game or something in in the Northern oh, yeah. States. Like I've done a lot of SEC and it's fun. I'd like to see what it's like in, in the Northern States as well. It's just, it's just an experience as much as anything else. So Dude, it's so crazy. So what I'm like a huge sports fan, so I'll, I'll follow anything. So growing up in the UK, is it like proper football would have been like kind of the sport you watched or tennis? So, or? so I mean, you grew up in the UK, you're going to play soccer, football, like, 24 7 effectively like okay uh, i was more of a rugby man myself um oh, nice. so rugby was was my first love uh and it continues to be my love we're in the middle of the world cup right now england doing okay but i'm not sounds bad i'm not expecting them to do much better for much longer we'll see how that plays out um but yeah rugby and then you just i mean as a kid you just play soccer constantly it yeah, is you 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 get out of school at 3 30 and you just go straight and you just play with your friends and it goes on for hours and hours and hours you take a slight break for dinner and you play even more like you literally you literally play from dawn until dusk so wow you played a lot but you know rugby was my thing that you can't necessarily just pick up a ball and play you actually need to know what you're doing a little bit more yeah i played rugby for one season it was like during the off season i played football growing up in high school and man, what a violent sport, but so much fun. <laughs> I loved it. It's it's a lot of fun. The best, what is it my coach said to me once? Andrew said, look, here's the deal. What you lack in size, I'm not a big guy. I'm like 5'10", 175. He's like, you make up for in a lack of regard for your own personal safety. Throw <laughs> 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 the body on the line. Um, that it's, but my wife, she, um, when we moved here to the States, I, I started playing a little bit and she, uh, she stopped me and she was right to do so because what I found here when we moved to the States, you have a lot of ex football players who end up playing rugby and (laughs) they are, you know, physical, just insane athletes, absolutely insane, but without necessarily any of the skills. And Uh and that became, um, yeah, we, we watched a few games and we're like, Oh no, 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 this is this is not the same sport anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. no, do not use your head as a weapon. We don't do that. <laughs> no, that's it, a good point, man. I actually, I felt like I learned to tackle much. Like, playing rugby helped me with my tackling technique, right. not to just like collide every time. It was more of like a, a like a, I don't know, um, not an artistic way to tackle, but it was it was more anyway. It just it, it, it helped me with my like you you, 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 it's literally you in, in england you do what we call touch rugby so you don't not full on contact up until like the age of six maybe and then yeah. about seven eight years old you're going to contact um uh, yeah. where you are to semi-contact where you're tackling and it is like lesson number one is like how to tackle how to get your head out of the way how to protect yourself and yeah it's, it's a lot more elegant if you if you see a good wrap-up drag down or whatever you want to call it in rugby it's it's yep. very much different than like because football is more of a collision sport, whereas yeah. more rugby, I feel is like a little bit more like elegant in the way they, they are physical. But uh, anyway, it's just, I know we yeah. got off topic, but yeah, uh, no, sorry. You got me no, talking no, about it's good. So I, I, I asked the questions. <laughs> it's great. Well, uh, Andrew, again, really appreciate the conversation. Um, again, as this type of information and, and just discussions hits home, because I look it into this stuff all the time. Um, what I'll do is I'll put uh, Kimberlite's, um, 
website link in the show notes. Uh, for those out there, connect with Andrew on LinkedIn. I noticed you guys put up a YouTube video. I encourage Kimberlite and the rest of the team there. I know you're slim, but keep putting out that type of content, man. It's huge. There's a lot of underpriced attention out there. Um, and for the listeners, share this episode. Like I said, connect with Andrew, connect with uh, Kimberlite, and, and just, yeah, be on the lookout for more information. Uh, and always remember that approaching the energy landscape with a radically open mind is helpful for everybody. Be kind and always remember that everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks, everybody. Have you ever thought about what a podcast could do for your B2B business? Well, you might be surprised by the benefits it could offer. Firstly, podcasts provide an amazing opportunity to establish your brand as an industry thought leader. By sharing your insights, experiences, and expert opinions, you position yourself as an authority, gaining the trust and the respect of your audience. Secondly, hosting a podcast is a fantastic way to engage your customers on a deeper level. It's not just about promoting your products and services, it's about providing value through engaging content, fostering strong relationships, and loyalty among your listeners. Oh, and did I mention networking? Yes, that's a huge part. Podcasts are an incredible networking tool. When you interview guests from your industry, you're not only creating valuable content, but you're also building relationships that can lead to future partnerships and collaborations. But we know starting a podcast can feel daunting. I've had several people reach out to me lately asking how to create a podcast, and that's where I'm going to try and come in and help. I'm here to help you navigate the podcast world. Reach out to me for a 15-minute call where we can discuss your podcasting ambitions. Whether you're starting from scratch or simply looking to improve your existing show, I'm here to help. And guess what? I have a playbook too, a step-by-step -step guide to launching a successful podcast, and I can't wait to share it with you. This playbook has everything from topic brainstorming to technical setup to effective promotion strategies, all the essentials for a thriving podcast. So why wait? Get in touch today and let's embark on this podcasting journey together. After all, your voice deserves to be heard. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace.